Hi, and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, State Clerk of the EPC. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you again, Rachel Joseph, as always. And uh, thank you for those of you who are listening in to another edition of In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, not just for the EPC, but it starts there. And as that concentric circle goes out, we hope that you'll expand into your spheres of influence and share this good word with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, however you are led to do that, whether it's word of mouth or giving us a shout out on social. Uh, we appreciate any way in which you can help expand the conversation because we believe every Friday when we drop one of these episodes, there are good things being said that are encouraging people, strengthening people, equipping people. It's really about the body of Christ and the uh, not just what God is doing in the EPC. We're a very small part of what God is doing around the world, but we want to be attentive to what God is doing, cooperate with what he is doing. And in 37 years of pastoral ministry, uh, I always told people it was way better to identify what God was doing and go and join him in that activity than try to create something and generate something on our own. That usually never works. So uh, we, we pay attention to things like that. And I have the privilege of sitting in a chair where I get to have great conversations with a lot of people around the country, particularly in this family of churches called the EPC. And today we're excited about having uh, Stephen Moorfield join us on the conversation. Stephen is a pastor of Christ Covenant EPC Church in Leota, Kansas, and he's an author of the book called But the Blood. It's a novel, actually, about the bloodiest county seat battle in American history. And we're going to talk about that book, and we're going to talk about how that has become kind of a a platform for conversations around the gospel that is breaking down barriers in their community, and maybe some of his thoughts on how revitalization and small churches loving their communities well could take place. So Stephen, we're grateful to have you on In All Things. Well, thank you, Dean. It's great to be here today. Yeah, we're excited to dive into that conversation. But before we do, and I think this is apropos because Stephen and I have actually talked a little bit about him coming and uh, maybe presenting or speaking at a conference that we're going to be promoting next fall, not too early to put it on your schedule. You might want to block out in pencil at least, November 6th through the 10th. I don't know that it'll be that entire time, but it'll be sometime during that week of November 6th to 10th in San Antonio, Texas, at First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, a joint effort between the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians, ECO, and the EPC, a We Kirk conference, a conference just for small churches, about small churches. It won't be about ECO. It won't be about the EPC. Uh, One of the things that we have in common as denominations is we have a lot of smaller churches who in this culture are facing some unique challenges. And uh, I think what you're going to hear today in our conversation with Stephen is one of the ways in which faithful pastor in a smaller community is able to really be effective and do the work of revitalization and see the gospel spread in their own Jerusalem. 
that's a, a huge challenge. Uh, the first church that I pastored uh, had about 80 members, and I was there for about seven years. And I will tell you the dynamic in a small town, in a small church, particularly a rural community, is very different than a middle-sized church or a larger church. So the things that our smaller churches are facing, which is the vast majority not only of churches in the EPC, but it's actually the vast majority of churches in the United States. The challenges they're facing, particularly post-pandemic, are ones that we need to pay attention to and we need to listen in well and determine how we can come alongside and support one another in these vital uh, missional outposts uh, throughout our country. So uh, mark those dates for a Wheat Kirk Conference a combo between ECO and the EPC, November 6th through the 10th, at least in those general footprint of dates in San Antonio, Texas. But more information will be coming out as we get closer to that time. All right, let's pivot and turn into that conversation. Stephen, you went to a small rural church. In fact, you went to a rural church all the way on the west side of Kansas. And, and God has just blessed you and you're thriving there. So I just, your story to me is so important and so compelling. I'm grateful to have this conversation today. And then when I heard about your book, I thought to myself, uh, I've got to get this guy on the podcast uh, tomorrow. Help our congregation, congregation, help our audience, if you will, maybe a type of congregation to get to know you. Thank you, Dean. I'm an EPC kid. Um, I'm an EPC covenant child. I was Born into a family that was attending Colonial Pres in Kansas City, and they planted a church on the Kansas side of the state line, Covenant Chapel, which is now merged with another church and is still EPC. So I grew up in the EPC, was baptized as an infant in the EPC. My dad's a ruling elder in the EPC. My younger brother's a, a pastor in the EPC, Gashland EPC in Kansas City, Missouri. So I'm kind of EPC through and through, probably around the age of 16 on a, on a mission trip to New Orleans doing urban ministry with my, with my youth group at Covenant Chapel. God really, I mean, I've, I've known and loved the Lord as, as long as I can remember from my earliest memories, but God really wrestled away, I would say, an idolatry of, of the suburban American dream. Grew up with a lot of friends and peers you know, who, who had both parents, doctors, you know, living in, in, in mansions or, you know, close to mansions, many mansions, and really had this strong desire, though I love the Lord, to uh, pursue some sort of business or occupation that would make as much money as possible. And something on that mission trip changed my heart. It was undeniable. By the end of that trip, I had completely forsaken all career plans and knew I was called to ministry. Mm. knew I was called to to love folks who were not being loved and at the same time intellectually was introduced to kind of the the young restless reform movement guys like John Piper, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung and others like that. And so probably in the period of I don't know, probably 4 or 5 months read 40 to 50 Christian books and never read a serious theology book before and just started devouring these books and really began practically pursuing for seminary at the age of 16. That started a journey that, that led to college. So let me just stop you. You yeah, read 40 yeah. or 50 books devouring Reformed theology around the age of 16. Is that what I heard you say? <laughs> that's correct, yeah. So I'm just going to say it out loud. That's weird. You know that, right? Oh, it's super weird. Okay. It's super right. weird. I just wanted yeah. to call that out because you don't want to know what I was doing at 16, I promise you. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was an absolute uh, change. Again, not conversion. Uh, I absolutely knew the Lord before then, but my 
my, my heart's affection and focus in life was, was incredibly clarified. So yeah, I went to college, I uh, got a scholarship to play soccer at a little school up in Iowa and study history and religion kind of to prepare for seminary. And uh, little did I know what I was getting myself into and, and what, what God had in store. It was not at all what I thought. Playing on the soccer team meant I wasn't able to attend church on Sundays. So I only did that for a year before quitting. And my first religion class, uh, the professor got up and gave us a hundred reasons why we can't trust the Bible. One of the first chapels at the school, a Buddhist monk passed out communion. We were asked to sign up for the campus ministry drag show our first week there. And so thinking I was preparing for ministry by getting some good training, I found myself in a really, really dark situation. Uh, with the help of a, a navigator's guy who had a restraining order on him, we started an underground Bible study at this campus um, at the same time as the chapel to provide evangelical Orthodox Christian Bible study. And uh, we had about 80 folks coming to this when the professors and administration came and shut it down and told us that if we continued to meet, we'd be expelled and we would be flunked out of our classes, unable to transfer elsewhere. And so kind of a big moment, a testing moment. And the next week we persisted and they, they didn't go through on their threat, but our Bible study dropped, dropped from 80 to eight wow. in one week. So I tried to leave the school three or four times and in God's providence just was not able to. There were always weird things that happened that prevented a transfer. And in God's grace, the highlight of the whole time in that really difficult place was, was meeting my wife mm. about my last year there. So it was absolutely worth it. An incredible gift from God, but a really dark season, a lot of testing and, you know, learning to not just be excited about Christ and pursuing ministry, but, but to do it in a really hard place. And I so, think about uh, Jesus in the beginning of his ministry, Stephen, you know, and he's got to go into the wilderness first, which is I think we have these romanticized understandings of going into the wilderness, but it was a it was a place of dryness. It was a place of temptation. It was a place of just this arid spiritual environment. I mean, it's just so interesting that in preparation for ministry, God would have to take you to this sort of dark, difficult place. But in it, He brings you, you know, the woman that you're going to share your life with, and prepares you for ministry. I mean, you can only see that stuff looking back, right? The providence of God right. is is twenty twenty in the rearview mirror. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, I wouldn't change a thing in the moment. I was doing everything I could to, to go somewhere else. So uh, my wife Morgan and I got married um, and she finished up school and then we went straight to Covenant Seminary. It was like walking out of pitch black night into, you know, a tropical paradise is how it felt um, after that experience. The ethos of, of grace in, in that school and the biblical teaching and professors, administration, staff, everything. It was just such a change and such a gift from God. So going from a, a really hard testing time to just the time of, of being fed and really growing. So during that time, I remained under care of my, my home EPC church. But like every other young guy, and you kind of alluded to this, um, everybody wanted to be an urban church planner. And that was, that was the thing. And I was reading a lot of Tim Keller and Center Church and things like that. And so I was pursuing that. And so I got an out-of-bounds internship with the permission of my Presbyterian church, 
with an urban church plant that was doing some really kind of unique and groundbreaking refugee ministry in St. Louis. It was actually affiliated with Acts 29 and had a great experience, learned how to be an urban church planner, uh, was preaching monthly. And this church offers me pretty much the, the senior pastor position and the chance to be the first paid pastor at this church, kind of my dream calling, other than that it wasn't in the EPC. The kicker was we had just become pregnant with our first child, and here I'm falling in love with covenant theology and seeing the beauty of infant baptism, and the church's one stipulation is uh, that I cannot baptize my son. Wow. So we had a week or two to pray about it, and it was just so clear to us that that we were we would be compromising our beliefs to do so. And we love this church. They loved us. And it was very amicable, but we had to say no. And that's at the end of seminary. And so all of a sudden the door's wide open. We have no, no idea what we're going to do, where we're going to go, kind of feeling lost. And as a joke, a good friend of mine, uh, David Hoffelmeyer, who's an EPC pastor in Colorado, he sends me an email as a joke And it's for this little church in Leota, Kansas. And he says, hey, I know you've always wanted to get back to Kansas. Um, And it's a joke because this part of Kansas is further away from Kansas City than St. Louis is. Yeah, you're closer to Denver than Kansas City, aren't you? Yeah, we're about three and a half, four hours from Denver. So anyway, it's a joke. I laugh. I delete the email. And then in our kind of seminary required licensure ordination class the next day or two, the professor turns to a group of guys in the class and says, you know, you're a bunch of cowards because you would go anywhere in the world. You would serve in the most dangerous cities. Uh, you go to the most dangerous countries. You'd think with pride that you could lead massive churches, but none of you would be willing to grace a small rural church and actually get the training that you need to be a faithful pastor. Wow. And I have no idea why he said it. It was kind of out of the blue. I don't know who that guy is, but I love him already. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody else knew where he was going with it, but there was just this terrible conviction in the moment about deleting that email. And so as soon as the class was over, I fished the email out of the trash And I attached a resume, some information, sent it off and thought, well, I'm good now. My conscience is satisfied and that's it. And little did I know within two days, I I had a call from this church and they listened to my sermon and read about my, my urban church experience and surprisingly thought they'd like to have us come out. And I said, well, my wife's pregnant and, you know, we've only got two weeks to travel, so it's just not going to work. And their response is, we'll see you next week and uh, we'll get you some tickets and have you come on out. So somehow my wife, Morgan, agreed. And I remember landing at this tiny airport and literally watching tumbleweeds blow ac- across the <laughs> runway and just seeing my wife's look. And, and uh, there's about 70 mile per hour winds, dust flying. When, when wind blows out here during that time of the year, the flies from the feed yards get blown everywhere. So there were flies. It was, it was literally the worst time ever to visit this part of Kansas. And uh, we were thinking, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? So God's sense of humor and good providence took us as a couple who thought we were going to do inner city church planning and, and brought us to one of the most remote, probably represented areas in the EPC to a fantastic church with incredible people. And we've been here 
nine years, God has been so good. Everything we've done has been has been very slow, very steady, and He's just produced a lot of incredible f- fruit over those nine years here. I'm so grateful that I started my first seven years in a smaller church because I tell people, you know, some people say everything I ever learned, I learned in kindergarten. I say, well, everything I ever learned about being a pastor, I learned at, at the Climber Church. I mean, they, they taught me so gracious and, and, and willing to accept all of my youthful inexperience. And, and I thought I knew everything. I really knew practically nothing. And they were super gracious to me and uh, the ways in which I grew as a pastor during that time. I, I am forever grateful that the Lord directed my path that way. And your story is so rich and so compelling. But I do want to talk about your book because it, it's really such an interesting turn in a community like yours, everybody kind of knows each other and the walls are there, but people maybe don't always acknowledge them. And you took a pathway toward kind of reaching into your community through writing a novel about an important historical, maybe the important historical moment of your community. And so talk to us about your book, But the Blood. And it's not just a history, it's actually a historical novel, right? Yeah. And you know, I think kind of the segue into this novel, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about, but I think the American Christian culture, and and especially in a few circles, has really done a good job of captivating people's hearts for the city and kind of this return to the city. And I think one of the reasons so few people come to small places like this is that we, we haven't done a good job of captivating people's hearts for the beauty of small town life of agriculture, of farming, of ranching, of really the stories that are told in these places. And so right when I got here, I started reading authors like Marilyn Robinson and Wendell Berry. And You're talking my love language there, Stephen. I'm I, wonderful. In the last yeah. year, thanks to my daughter, I think I've read about 15 Wendell Berry books. Yes. The series on that small town in Kentucky is just do you, Wonderful. Have a J- do you have a favorite? J- Jaber Crow is oh, number one. There and it is. Hannah Coulter is number two. Oh, so. you and me, man. I'd love Jaber. <laughs> Jaber Crow is number one. Chapter seven in Hannah Coulter on her grieving is sing- is the singularly best thing I have ever read on grief. Oh. It is just so beautiful. So, all right, you and I are going to have to have an offline conversation about that, but get back to your book. Yeah. So, so those things captivated my heart. And then I began, it gave me a lens to look at the folks in my church and their jobs and their work and even the town. And while the first two years here were incredibly hard culture shock wise, my wife and I have fallen in love with, with this church, with the people and with the community and have been able to see it. I feel like finally for, for what it is and see the beauty there. So at my seventh year here, the church granted me a sabbatical And, you know, when you're a solo pastor, you have to lean into your strengths. You can't do everything. And so a lot of solo pastors, you know, approach ministry differently because we have different gifts and skill sets. And so at that time, I just recognized probably my biggest weakness is is I am an introvert. Um, I'm somebody who loves to to read, study, prepare. I love uh, one-on-one discipleship, small groups, but I'm not a huge crowd person. Um, That sounds funny in a small town, but they're you know, still crowds that gather here. And uh, so I thought, you know, I think I've been faithful to my church during these seven years, but I haven't connected as well as I'd like with the bigger community, with the county. Our county is about 2,000 people. That's not that the town is 2,000 people. The county 
is 2,000 yes. people. And okay. the town is the majority of that. So thinking, okay, how can I reach out as somebody who's not naturally good at reaching out to a, to a larger group of people like that outside the context of the church? And then knowing, like any church in any community that's been there for a while, there's baggage from the past, some fair, some undeserved, some mysterious. And how do we use this time? And this was really a conversation with my session. How do I use this time to do something different than ordinary pastoral work, but that can, that can actually bless the community as a whole? And so looking at that weakness, I thought, what, what do I have to offer? And I'm a history guy. I love history have an undergrad degree in history. And so I started thinking along those lines and I had heard for years that we had this bloodiest county seat battle. And so I just started doing a little research ahead of time and found that the most that had been written on it was five to eight pages. And there were names involved like Doc Holliday, Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp. And again, this line of it actually being the bloodiest county seat battle in American history. So made a great connection at our local museum, got access to the archives, and read basically all the primary source documents, including every weekly newspaper, from these two town sites that had this battle for a period of five years, and devoured all this information, taking notes. These newspapers are about three and a half feet tall, a couple feet wide, seven columns, like five-point font. So kind of painstaking research, but really worked through it and was looking to see, obviously there's tragedy, but is there any redemption? Is there any eternal truth that, that I could bring out in a story? Before this point, I'd written four other books, but they were all, you know, devotional or theological or even Christian history. And, you know, I've never written a novel before, so this was completely new and really looking. And I found pretty quickly on that there was a glimmer of gospel redemption in the story at the end. And from that moment, I knew, all right, we can make something happen with this. So the the result of this story has been really neat. It's opened up doors, speak multiple times in the town to a very non-churched, definitely not just my church audience, to speak at the school. I've spoken in almost every neighboring town in the big regional hub uh, Garden City, Kansas, have spoken to, to large crowds there a couple times. And the neatest response has been people coming up in my community who aren't from my church and saying, why would you do this? You're not from here. You're not from a small town. Why would you do this? And at first I thought they were saying, you know, are you even capable of writing a book? I thought they were kind of challenging that. But then I realized that the question was, why would you spend your time doing this? Why would you care about our history? Why would you kind of bring it, the story to light? And so it was, it was an incredible opportunity to say, well, our, our church loves our town and we, we think the story is really important and really special. We think that the story helps us think about how we handle conflict today. I mean, some of the themes that emerge in the book are that the media was no different back then than it is today. It might've actually been worse back then that our words can easily lead to violence, that people who are neighbors and who are exactly like each other can kill each other very easily. Mm. If there isn't reconciliation, if there isn't redemption of difficult situations. And so all these themes, you know, we 
think, wow, these, these speak to today. They're important. And so those are all relevant. Like every one of those touch points is like, okay, that is where we are right now. Absolutely. There was voter fraud, voter intimidation. There was political parties were standing. uh, Each party was standing behind one of the towns. And then you've got these big name celebrities like the Wyatt Earp and Matt Masterson being called in. You've just got all this intrigue. There's, There's poisonings. There's shell corporations pulling the strings of local corporations, um, all sorts of fraud. There are judges being bribed. Unfortunately, it's the worst of America. And yet the story offers a glimmer of hope and of how things can be done better. And so, yeah, to be able to tell people, we did this because we love the town. And, you know, I think a lot of folks were looking for, okay, but what's the catch? Like, is the book going to invite us to your church or is it going to like say that we need to go to your church or something. And, and there's been no catch. All the local proceeds and 95% of the proceeds have gone to our museum to help them preserve this history, you know? And so other folks have said, you know, have you done this so you can get rich? And it's like, you don't write a book about a small town's history to get rich. You know, there's no, there's, there's not money in that, but we've been able to raise a, a fair amount for our museum and yeah, to love and honor the town. And so I think the result you know, I'm not going to say that I can point to a bunch of conversions or that the floodgates have opened with, with new visitors at church, but I would say that the beauty of it has been I'm seeing some of those walls come down. I'm seeing some hostilities of, of those outside the church, unchurched, kind of broken down. And there have been a ton of folks who would have never pursued a conversation with me and who I wouldn't have had a chance to, to pursue a conversation with who have sought me out and said, hey, let's talk. I, I want to hear more. Tell me about the book. Tell me about why you did it. And so, you know, as a shy introvert, it has been God's gift yeah. to break down walls, make relationships. And, and I think to put a better taste in people's mouth for what the church is doing in our community. Right. So as we kind of bring this conversation, and I, I'm confident it's our first conversation like this because I've got so many thoughts spinning around in my head, Stephen, that I want to come back and revisit in a kind of part two of this. But give us in the, in the closing time that we have, how is it that a pastor in any community, but particularly in a smaller rural setting, falling in love with the community, how is that essential to any kind of hope for missional outreach? Yeah. You know, I think something that's mentioned in the book, but the the native grass here is called buffalo grass. I have it at our current parsonage. It's not the prettiest grass. It's pretty rough. It doesn't grow very tall, but the roots can go down 20 feet deep in the ground so it can survive any drought of any sort. I think with rural ministry, you have to have a mindset that I'm going to go and I'm going to stay for a significant period of time. And anything I do that's going to matter has to be long lasting. It has to be deeply rooted and it has to be rooted in, in love for this community. And so I think for, for Morgan and I, probably three, I think it was year three or four, we got an offer from a suburban church in an area that we were very favorable towards moving about as enticing of an offer as, as we could even dream or imagine. And we had this moment where we both were able to look at each other and say, we're called here and we love the people here. And it's actually easy to say no. Mm. And it was like that moment. And then sharing that with 
the session here and then close friends, it's like everything crystallized in that moment. And so I think as long as you're looking for what's next, or as long as rural ministry is a stepping stone, I don't think a ton of fruitful ministry can happen. That's not to say a person has to stay there their whole life, but one or two or three years of rural ministry is, is probably not going to be able to do anything of lasting value. So I think falling in love and then realizing that that, that love, there's a relationship there and, and not wanting to break it and, and realizing things out here move slower perhaps, but it's because they have to be more rooted to survive the difficulties and harshness of kind of life on the frontier, so to speak. Right. So that, that'd, be, that'd be a long answer to your question. The book is called But the Blood. It's a novel by Stephen Moorfield based on the true story of America's bloodiest county seat battle. And Stephen, how would they get a hold of this book if people wanted to read it? It's on Amazon and hardback and Kindle. Uh, you can also call our local museum and order it from them. And that way the money will go to them. But I will tell you just kind of the cherry on top of all of this is a faithful member of my congregation believed in this project so much. They said, we, we got to get this on Audible and you got to get a top-notch person to do it. And I said, you know, we're not going to, even if money's not an option, we're not going to attract somebody of that level to do it. And we actually ended up getting one of the top history narrators in all of America, Mark Deakins, a former Hollywood actor and has done a bunch of New York Times bestselling Audible books. He did it and he puts unique voices to every character in the story. It's, it's incredible. It's a dream come true. So I would just say, um, if you like Audible, 100%, that's the best way to hear the book. Okay, very cool. All right, man. Well, thanks, brother. I look forward to our conversation probably later this year in part two, digging down deep into the, the small rural church. But it's been a blessing to have you today and we appreciate you being on In All Things. Thank you so much, Dean. I really appreciate it. All right, my friends, we're going to close this conversation as we always do with that good word from God's word to put all of this into perspective. I was a history major when I was in college as well. And we always, my professors always said, if you don't learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, there's so many lessons. And we know as a people of the book from the Old Testament to the new, the story of God's people continues to unfold. But there's not a lot of new things under the sun. We continue to repeat these things. And, and yet at the same time, as the people of the book, we are those who know the sovereignty of God and that all things are under his lordship. So we finish with this, this verse that reminds us to put all of this and hold all of this in perspective. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, my friends, and in him and in him alone, all things hold together. For you see, he is the head of the body, the church, whether that is a small rural church, a suburban church, an urban church, large, small, uh, in the West, in the global south, uh, wherever the body of Christ gathers. He is the head of that body, the church, including the EPC. And so, my friends, until the next time we gather in this venue, it, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. 
For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.